My object is a vinyl recording. I think it's hard for me to think about a physical object that represented what came to mind when I was asked about a formative object from childhood or adolescence. But this is the Jimi Hendrix Experience live at Berkeley Community Theater, 1970, May 30th, 1970. And of course, this was about 10 years before I was born. So it's not that I had a personal connection to this when it happened, but it is something that ties me very closely to my dad. And it's kind of a cute and funny story. There's this legend. I don't know if it's a legend, but there's this story about him being in high school at Berkeley High School, which is where Berkeley Community Theater is, and sneaking into a Jimi Hendrix concert his senior year, which was 1970. And so this is most likely the recording from that concert. And I used to be really nostalgic, or not nostalgic, but wistful about the late 60s and 70s and really romanticizing what it must have been like to be a teenager, a Black teenager in Berkeley, California in the late 60s and 70s and hanging around People's Park and smelling the jasmine and probably other substances in the air, but mostly the jasmine and the warmth of the day on May 30th, 1970. And, you know, as many people close to me know, my father passed away two years ago. And so I've been searching for his presence in so many different places. I think about him so much as it relates to my faith. And so having this connection to him through music and specific music is really, really special. I really find so much peace in listening to this recording and kind of searching for his presence in the silent moments. Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors Season 2, Stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora. In partnership with the Muslim Wellness Foundation and Bayan Islamic School, the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary presents a new season of our podcast, Our Seven Neighbors. This season is hosted by Dr. Camila Mukmin Rashad. We are so glad you're here as we explore stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora, sharing experiences of religiously and racially minoritized voices in the United States, complicating the narrative, lifting up the ordinary moments, lifting up the extraordinary moments. You just heard from this week's guest, Kalia Abiade. Kalia is a Black Muslim woman who draws on nearly two decades of experience advocating for equity and racial justice in media, policy, and philanthropy. We are so thrilled to have her in conversation with our host, Dr. Rashad. My name is Kim Schultz, and I am the coordinator of creative initiatives at the Interreligious Institute and producer of this podcast. Now join us in the upcoming six episodes as we explore how Black narratives are shaped and just how our faith traditions and spirituality are being harnessed to create social and racial justice in the world. Let's join the conversation. My name is Camila Mukman Rashad, and I am here with Kalia Abiade. Um, she is the Vice President of Programs at Pillars Fund in Chicago, and she's also my really, really good friend. <laughs> so thank you for joining me on this episode of Our Seven Neighbors. Thank you, Camila. So I was really touched by the story that you shared about your dad. And, you know, it reminded me of a quote by a man named Daniel P. McAdams. And he writes a lot about life stories and what they mean to us and the meaning that we gather from our experiences and our formative moments. And he writes, if you want to know me, then you must know my story. 
for my story defines who I am. And if I want to know myself to gain insight into the meaning of my own life, then I too must come to know my story, the personal myth that I have tacitly, even unconsciously composed over the years. It is a story that I continue to revise and to tell myself and sometimes to others as I go on living. And from the story that you shared of your dad and this connection to this Jimi Hendrix moment um, in 1970, I wondered if you use that as a backdrop to think of your life as a novel or as a movie, what would be the title of that novel? Oh, wow. I was not prepared to think about titles. So it's a funny story about me. I'm a former newspaper editor, and every night I had to write headlines for articles that we were publishing. And I could crank those out, but whenever it came to titling my own things, I would be like, I need help. So I would definitely lean on some people. I'd probably pull from a quote. I might even pull a song title, uh, just something that was meaningful to me. So that might be something that by the end of our conversation, <laughs> I, can, I can think of, but I'm like looking through the track list now. That's always been something. It's hard to sum up, right? Even in thinking about memories, like they just go and go and go. And so I guess it would depend on what part of my story I told. So we're going to begin today by thinking about your life as this novel, right? Or a movie that has scenes. So imagine that this novel has a table of contents. It has main chapters in the story. So we're actually going to begin with your earliest memory, right? And what we're really curious about are these formative moments in which you might remember feeling feeling the presence of something greater than yourself, right? Feeling a sense of wonder, of imagination, of awe, right? And who those moments might be connected to. So it sounds as if your your dad, right, might play a really, you know, large role in this Kalia novel. And so I wonder if you can remember a memory or an experience where you had that sense of wonder, just of the world being bigger and trying to make sense of your role or your place in that big world. Definitely. I was thinking about this recently, and I there's always a soundtrack, right? I, I'm not an expert in music by any means, but I can't remember my life, my childhood home, my grandparents' homes without music in the background. And so one of my first memories is one of those that I don't remember if I actually remember it or if I remember the stories being told, but it was of seeing Cool in the Gang at the Fresno County Fair and sometime in the early 80s, right? I must have been four or five. And I remember being there with my parents and the feeling of crowds and people and loud music and being on my dad's shoulders and my mom being right there. And so that security of like being with your parents, but also being in this vast crowd and surrounded by music. And it was fall because the fair was always in October. So it must have felt, you know, not too cold because it was central California, but a little crisp and definitely like autumn. But that music, right. And understanding later on being told so many times that when I was a toddler that get down on it was my favorite song, right? That I would always bounce up and down to it. And <laughs> how like relevant that feels, right? Like I can't hear music and not move. So I would say that's an early, an early memory of mine. Um, it's just always, always being surrounded by music, but that moment in particular. 
stands out as a, an early one. Oh, wow. That's, I mean, that's beautiful. And also to even have the feeling of that love and security, you know, sitting on your dad's shoulders and, and being able to have this really awesome vantage point of the world, right, from, from his shoulders. And as you mentioned music, I wonder, because even the music can be such like a transcendent experience, I wonder what the role, if any, of like religion and spirituality played in your life when you were growing up and in the lives of your parents. For sure. Um, So my parents weren't Muslim and I became Muslim when I was 21, 21 sounds about right, almost 22. But my dad would absolutely have taken credit for the fact that I eventually came to Islam. And it's sort of funny thinking about (laughs) Wow. Detail. (laughs) So I was raised predominantly Catholic. My mom's family is from the Philippines. My mom was born in California. My grandmother was a very, very devout Catholic. And so I was confirmed in the Catholic Church, you know, did all of their sort of rites as a young person, first confession, first communion, confirmation, all of that. And in the background was my dad who would come to church on Easter and Christmas or, you know, special moments, but was really not as engaged in the formal aspects of that religious part. It was sometimes, and, you know, this would be hard to admit, Uh, when my grandmother was still living. But sometimes I felt like we were going to mass just so that when she called us a few hours later, we could answer affirmatively that we had gone, right? (laughs) We wouldn't be lying when we said we went. Dad was strategic. (laughs) That was very strategic. But my dad, you know, my grandparents on my paternal side migrated to California from Texas and Oklahoma. My grandmother was raised in a Baptist church. My grandfather, my my father came up in a Baptist church in the Bay Area and really just moved through different Black church spaces. So even though my Catholic church that I I went to and was a member of was very disconnected from that in every way, right? Like there were some threads of belief that were shared, but culturally it couldn't be more different. But that was very much also home to me, right? When we go back to the Bay Area from Fresno, which is about a three-hour drive, we would, you know, be welcomed with warm arms into my grandmother's church. There was music and it was lively. And I always understood. I always felt very comfortable there. I knew I was somebody's baby there, somebody's grandbaby. There was food. This is probably just, you know, how I'm remembering it. Maybe it wasn't like that every Sunday, but every time I went, it was a party. You know, it was just joyful and warm and so loving. And I, even though I couldn't name all the people who were there, they felt like family. So it absolutely was just foundational to like who I believed myself to be. And as I got older, I think I started understanding, especially, I mean, this is, I didn't even get to how like my dad, why my dad is claiming the Muslim part. But also when I moved to the South, those memories crystallized for me a lot, right? Understanding who I was in the world became a lot more clear when I was just immersed in a different type of Black culture in the church, in particular in the South. But my dad, though, I mentioned him being a high school senior in 1970 in Berkeley because I imagine what that's like for somebody coming up at that age, being surrounded by the Black Panthers, being surrounded by, you know, kind of dipping his toes in the nation of Islam. And, you know, he talks about it. And I, I I don't know, right? I don't, I can't, these are some of the questions that I can no longer ask. But I know that he was like hanging out with people in the nation. I know he started to like 
engage in that scene. I know he was searching for a sense of purpose and identity in his own faith and his own sense of like political education and political awareness and involvement. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily, he could tell me a lot about, you know, things that were faith related and, but we mostly talked about bean pie, right? <laughs> it was like bean pie and bow ties. <laughs> but I remember being about eight or nine years old and he taught a course at Fresno State in California about Malcolm X's life. And so that was just very much a part of, I don't remember not talking about Malcolm X, right? And I don't remember not talking about Islam being a part of his life. And I don't remember not talking about faith being wound up in like your sense of self and your sense of like political situational awareness and political awareness and involvement. So it's kind of hard to put, you know, the lines blur from my formal religious upbringing and just like sort of the way I move through life as a spiritual person connected to like the social world, but it's all kind of there. So I have a follow-up question because what I'm what I'm sensing is that also so much of your life story is connected to your dad. And he sounds like he was quite a character. And so I'm I'm wondering how did your father, since he's he's sort of claiming your conversion or your path, right, or your seeking of Islam, how did your father define faith, right? Given all of those influences that you just described. And what of his definition do you feel like you sort of embraced in your own sort of spiritual journey? Yeah, you know that now I'm thinking about a headline that I wrote in like 2007 or so, but the whole concept, which gets repeated a lot in different Christian spaces, right? But but I think it exists across faith practices is this idea of like faith without works is dead, right? I think for for myself and definitely from the examples that I saw in both of my parents, right? Like there is no purpose. I won't say there's no purpose, but it's really hard to find purpose in faith if you're not matching some of your earthly endeavors with it. You can come off as pious as you want, but if people interact with you and they don't enjoy being in your presence, if they don't see what good you are contributing, then it feels a little bit hollow. So I think that's definitely a thread. And I will say, I didn't really understand much of my father's like personal spiritual journey until I was seeking, really, really seeking. I didn't think about it too much, right? Until we were living in Florida, Northern Florida, so very much the South. And I ventured a little bit beyond the Catholic church and started going to a a Pentecostal church in the countryside um, outside of the town I was going to college. And I brought my dad with me once and that feeling and that sound of music. And that's when we really started to open up about his own spiritual journey. But other than that, you know, before that, I was maybe like 19 by then. Before that, it was really just observation and understanding that like, I didn't need to see my dad going to church every week to understand that he felt like a sense of higher purpose. So I think that is something that stuck with me. What are the most important lessons you would say you've learned from your Catholic and Baptist family, your brief sort of Pentecostal experience that you then carry forward with you into Islam? Yeah, I think in all of those cases, I've really, and this is going back to an earlier part of our conversation, I really had to figure out like who I am in all of those spaces, because I think in my experience, it's been really easy to get lost in other people's expectations of me and who I should be. So I'm thinking about in Catholic spaces that I grew up in, often being the only 
black child in those spaces, not seeing a lot of black. Now there are a lot of black Catholics. I live across the street from a predominantly black Catholic church, but that wasn't my experience growing up. So I'd have to just think about who am I in this space? And like, how do I connect to the people around me? I remember very specifically, one of my catechism teachers really sort of explicitly denigrating black culture in the way she was talking about music. And I didn't know where to go. I didn't know how to connect that to like just the feelings that were going on. I didn't know who was a resource to me in that institution, in that space to like process what I was feeling as it related to like my Catholic faith. Right? So there were moments like that where I just felt isolated. Of course, there were beautiful moments, but I'm thinking about like, it was important in that moment for me to have a sense of who I was outside of that institution, because I think I could have easily been lost or swayed or made to feel insecure if I didn't sort of have some kind of fortification that came from my family. Um, I think about the same thing when I, you know, ventured as a college student, which is a time that a lot of people are exploring who they are and where they fit in the world. This Pentecostal church, it was, it was, such an incredible experience. And I don't mean that in a, it was just, it was so important in my life. I had lived in the South for about five or six years at that point. I started to understand black migration patterns and the fact that in that space, I was usually the only like person who was claiming like mixed descent. Of course, we're all like mixed in some way, but I was like showing up as like a very decidedly black and Filipino person. And people did not know what to do with that because there, it felt like in that time, the mid nineties, late nineties, really clear binaries, black or white, and then other. Right. So I wasn't all the way fitting in, but I was also like, I'm black. Like, you can't tell me that I'm not, I'm also Filipino. I don't know where that, where that goes today, but like, I'm definitely black. So I'm going to go try out this, you know, these different spaces. I'm going to go try on these different, different sizes of myself. And so going into this church as a college sophomore, I think going about 30 minutes away from Gainesville, Florida, which was already a pretty small town, but going outside of that to a tiny, tiny town called Stark. And there was a family church that a lot of my classmates were attending and we went partly for church, of course, but we went partly because it, again, it comes back to music, right? We had some friends who played the organ and played the piano. And around this time was D'Angelo's second album. And you know, <laughs> D'Angelo had like the piano music and the organ music. You could hear the church in his very sensual, sexy songs. Right? There, was, there were organ chords in the background playing for sure. So I remember sometimes during like the offering or altar call, our musicians who are also college students, now I'm telling all the secrets, uh, <laughs> were absolutely playing bits of D'Angelo's new album during church service. Right? And so usually it was only a handful of us who would know, but it was like this knowing connection, right? We were like, yeah, we see what you're doing, right? With some Carl Thomas and then this was a real like height of black gospel music, right? Kirk Franklin and Fred Hammond and all of these people. So it was very fluid, but I went because it felt so good, right? It felt so good to be around other young people who were finding themselves, finding their faith and also just attached to like this sense of reality. But the story that is coming to mind is, you know, Catholics believe that Jesus was the son of God and that, you know, this is not, this is not something that is foreign. And I didn't, understand that other people would see me as not all the way Christian 
in the way that they defined it. So I remember one time during an altar call, just feeling really caught up in the moment, feeling very emotional. And I don't think I've ever told this story publicly, but the pastor notices that I'm really, really emotional and really, really wrapped up in, in this moment. And I, and I was, it was completely overwhelming. And he puts the microphone in my face and I didn't realize this till I opened my eyes. Right. And he says, he's like, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? And I'm like, well, yeah. Like, you know, why, why are, I didn't understand why this question was being posed to me because that was not a question that I ever contemplated in my life. Like, uh, you know, this is on both sides of my family. Yes. And then the church erupts like, and they're screaming and shouting and they were saying that I had been saved. And I was like, whoa, what's happening right now? Because like, this wasn't new. I was just affirming things that I had not known to believe otherwise for my entire life. And all of a sudden I was seen in a different light by other congregates in the church. And now I belonged to them in a really particular way that I understood that I had just affirmed something that I didn't even know I was affirming. And this was part of my, you know, less than a year later, I was Muslim. So I don't know. What, you know I don't know what they did with that information, but I wasn't saying anything that wasn't already a part of me inside, but now people on the outside saw me in a very different way. Mm -hmm. so coming into Islam and coming into the community, which was just, you know, a few towns away, coming into the Muslim community, again, I had to know who I was. This was just post 9-11. This was culturally mind-blowing to me because my associations with Islam before this were very much rooted in Black culture Black history, Black social justice work, Black power movements, and to come into a Muslim community that was not that, but very earnest and also in a lot of pain and turmoil in the aftermath of 9-11 was just jarring. And there was no music, right? There were no organ chords either hinting at or not hinting at D'Angelo or any other like gospel music that was familiar to me. There was no shouting or screaming in a in the masjid right there was no call and response it was very silent and to experience this new community life as a muslim fervently believing in islam i didn't know how to connect to the community i didn't know how to connect to the community that i was in because the things i was used to connecting to people with with call and response and music and that connection that through those sounds it wasn't available to me. So I was just like, I don't know where I am. I don't know who I am in this space yet. So that actually leads me to my next question then is, it's like all of the ways that you're sort of connecting belonging and community and identity takes on a really unfamiliar form while you're also trying to kind of discover who you are in this new space. Like, I, I wonder, what is that soundtrack for you? What were you hearing in the silence of this new religious space that allowed you to say, I'm going to stick with this <laughs> for just it a little was, bit longer? Camila, it was so silent. <laughs> and I think there was also like silence on my part because I was just learning, right? I had you can go either way. Like I think a lot of converts, I'll speak for myself, but <laughs> a lot of converts that I encounter, we go through this phase of feeling like we have some answers or that we can, especially in that time, right? Muslim communities were looking for spokespeople left and right, <laughs> uh, for better or for worse, right? And so there was a little bit of arrogance that came with that, right? With 
with the way that the Muslim community was being demonized, I was like, well, I'm not part of that, right? Like I have a different experience. I, you know, I can bridge, I can bridge these things, right? I, I don't, nobody is questioning my like quote unquote Americanness. And in retrospect, that was like, it was a pretty arrogant approach that, that I had. So I think I had to like humble myself pretty quickly because there was so much that I didn't know. My question is now, as you're a mother, how have you, for your children, right, tried to integrate all of who you are, right, the Baptist, the Catholic, the Pentecostal, (laughs) into, you know, kind of weaving all of those identities um, and also them being like mixed race children and understanding their sort of spiritual and religious heritage, what has been sort of your best effort into weaving all of those threads for your children so that they also have a story that they can tell? This is something that haunts me. I'm like, how will my children know who they are? One really interesting thing that my husband and I just one day, of course, this is a given to almost anybody on the outside, but one day we were like, wow, our kids, they're not converts, right? Like they're born into this faith. They don't know anything else. So our reference points are different than their reference points. There will be a moment that they will have to choose their own path. And of course, we pray that they choose the one that we chose. But we also understand that this was a moment that our parents woke up to one day when we chose a different part of the path, right? I'll say we, we, we chose our own way and in very much ways that we can connect, both my husband and I, ways that we can connect very, very closely to our parents. But definitely made a different decision. So I think about that. I think about, are we modeling the kind of life for our children that they will want to choose parts of our path to take with them? I think about the cultural references a lot. So many of my husband's and my cultural references come directly from church. We understand Black culture and American culture so much through our experiences in church in ways that we're like, wow, do they even know what we're talking about? Does this make sense to them? Does this joke make sense to them? Does this scene on television make sense to them? Um, Even in music, I don't know if you know Crystal Truscott, but she's this incredible scholar, you know, historian of Black culture and theater teacher and just artist and just amazing human. But she talks a lot about recognizing the sample and how we think about that a lot in hip hop as like we hear samples of actual soul music or R&B classics that, you know, or even rock classics that hip hop artists today will pull in. And you understand the richness of this song even more to greater depth than somebody who doesn't, if you understand these samples that the artists are pulling from. But she points out how that exists in all types of ways in culture, right? How near Savannah, Georgia, there are churches with, where the pews face eastward and they have Arabic written carved into the sides. And if you understand that, right, it's a church, but you understand that those people were Muslims at some point in their life, right? So recognizing these samples that exist all around us. And I think about what are my kids' reference points? Like, are we doing enough? And I remember one day, like, one of my kids didn't know who Lauren Hill was. And I was like, all right, we're sitting down. It's lesson time. (laughs) And so I think about, you know, of course, as I've already talked about, it's fluid for me from music to cultural references to faith. It's all connected. And so... We want them, we pray that they understand like just where they come from and wherever they choose to go, that they don't like disconnect from us completely. 
And of course, we want to be like praying, you know, with them. We want to be celebrating Eid with them and going to Jumu with them and all of that. But we also know we have to like lay all of this out in a way that gives them agency to claim it for themselves. And I think that's the hardest thing for me as a parent. Given all of the stories that have come to mind, right, over over this time, what might be the title of that novel or of that movie, if you prefer? Yeah, the song that's been playing in my head for the last hour is definitely Crosstown Traffic. And I don't mean for this to all be a Jimi Hendrix. Um, <laughs> yeah, like it's just, that wasn't intentional. It's just been in my head. And I think of that in all of the ways that, you know, we're just kind of moving, just moving, right? And I think you have to sometimes just pull over, (laughs) just pull over and like take stock because I think in the ways that I've been talking about these memories, they're all things that crystallize for me years after they happened, right? I think when you're in the moment and when a memory is being made, you don't necessarily think about about what the significance of that moment will be. Like, I think about the last time I saw my dad. I didn't think, okay, this is the last time I saw my dad. I better make it worth it. But I'm really glad that it happened the way that it did. You know, it's such an uncomplicated memory. It's just, it's just like one that I'm so glad that we have. But I had to like sort of just pause. And sometimes you just got to pull over and wait for that crosstown traffic to clear. So I think that's the song that's just been playing in my head. But also feels relevant today. Ask me tomorrow and it it might be something else. No, I think that's perfect. And I think that is, it weaves again together all of the, you know, the elements that you've described of, of discovery, of incorporating all of these different aspects of who you are and, and really not choosing, right? Like they're, they're all influential. They're all important, you know, right, as you think about who you were, who you are, who you're becoming. So my my last question is, there's a, a beautiful quote from Lucille Clifton, and she says, say it clear and it will be beautiful. So I wonder what in your life do you want to be clear so that it is beautiful? Hmm. I think what we were talking about, my children, your children, I think, you know, over over the years, we've talked about our children and the sort of challenges and joys of raising them. I want like my love for them to be clear in the ways that I live, but also in the ways that like my faith is practiced and expressed and that I hope that that shows in the ways that I live my life and in the ways that I correct my mistakes and in the ways that I like just put one foot in front of the other. And get through that crosstown traffic. <laughs> cross town traffic. Hopefully that will be clear too. I got to go pick them up later. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for this, allowing us a window into, you know, all of the beautiful memories and the ways that you reminisce. And, you know, what I gather was like the way that you strive for integration and wholeness, right? Striving to understand all of these seemingly contradictory parts, right? But not choosing, right? It's, I choose all of the above because they're important and significant and beautiful and they help me make my story clear. Um, That is sort of a a definite 
strong thread that I heard throughout your stories. And it is important to to tell all of the stories that make up sort of the tapestry of the Black spiritual diaspora, that there's no one story, but that we are comprised of all of these samples, right? And we can sort of hear the original, we can hear, you know, the ways that people have adopted and, and embraced and taking some of some of these rhythms and now sort of producing different sound right, in different ways. And so thank you for allowing us just a small window into some of those memories that have shaped the person that you are. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mila. So there it was. We hope you enjoyed that story and conversation between Dr. Rashad and Kalia Abiyade. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. More information on our guest, as well as her formative photo, can be found at OurSevenNeighbors.com. We hope you will join us next time for another episode of Season 2, Stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora. Thank you for listening to Our Seven Neighbors. We'd love it if you would share this podcast and share your story, your photo story, with us on social media. You can find us at the Interreligious Institute on Facebook or Instagram. And if you feel compelled, tell us your story. Share a photo. Share a sample from your life story. Or, better yet, share it with someone around you. As the poetry of Lucille Clifton offers, say it clear, and it will be beautiful. See you next time.